Well, if you have your Bibles with you, maybe you'd like to turn to the book of Joel. We're in the second of a short series on the prophet Joel and his message to the people of his time and his message to us today. Now, there's many ways of ministering God's word from the platform. Sometimes you can do a series on some spiritual aspect of Christianity like prayer or faith, topical. Or perhaps you can do a specific sermon week by week addressing the needs as you feel led by the Holy Spirit. But it's also good for us at times to spend time in a particular book of the Bible to hear the message of the whole book. And so this is what we're doing with Joel over the next few weeks. Well, not next Sunday, but over the next few weeks. We're trying to hear what Joel is saying, not only to his contemporary audience, but also what God is speaking to us today. Last Sunday, if you need to catch up, it's there on our media page. We started in chapter one and we were speaking about when God interrupts. And in chapter one of Joel, we saw how this great plague of locusts began to hit Israel, wave after wave of plagues, year after year. And Joel was saying that God was in some way speaking to the children of Israel through these devastating plagues of locusts. He'd allowed them to happen because the people at the time, it wasn't that they had great and manifest sins. They weren't committing huge idolatry. Uh, It wasn't that there was great social injustice or sexual immorality. But what had happened to Joel's generation is that they had got into a routine life without God. They'd got used to living with God in the background. They didn't really need him. They didn't really, really need to pray to him. They had this routine. And God allowed this plague of locusts to disrupt their routine so that he could call them back to him. You say, well, that's a pretty big disruption to let a bunch of locusts hit. Well, it might have been harsh to allow these locusts, but perhaps the people of Israel were in such a place of deafness that they really needed God to speak louder to them to call them back to him. One of the quotes I used last uh, week was from C.S. Lewis who said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to raise a deaf world. Last week we were talking about how God does speak to us in the blessings and in the pleasures. But when he speaks to us in the blessings and pleasures of life and his grace, uh, it's usually in a whisper. And sometimes we're so enjoying God's blessing that we forget to listen that there's a sermon that's coming through in that blessing. Every miracle that Jesus did in the New Testament had a corresponding message or sermon. When he fed the 5,000, as Gabriel said early, it was, I am the bread of life. When he raised someone from the dead, what a wonderful miracle to have Lazarus back. But there was a corresponding message, I am the resurrection. So God whispers in the blessings. You have to really bend your ear to hear, but he shouts in the pains. And sometimes he allows 
things to disrupt our life and disrupt them quite severely. And we have to realize that God is also speaking in those trials and tribulations. Might be terrible at the time, but God has a redemptive plan even in those. This was the message really of Joel in chapter 1 to the people. To call them back to God so that not only could he heal them, if you like, from this plague of locusts, but also bring them into a greater measure of intimacy with him and ultimately a greater outpouring of his blessing, both spiritually and materially. Now, when we come to chapter 2, what Joel is going to do is he's going to speak again about this terrible uh, locust plague that he's allowed to happen to awaken his people from their spiritual sleep, to sober them up from their spiritual drunkenness, to, to, to try and get them out of their routine without God. He's going to talk again about it, but this time Joel is not just going to apply this plague of locusts to their current daily lives, but he's going to say that this plague of locusts actually is a sample and a foretaste of the great day of the Lord that's one day going to come into history and that all history is traveling towards. This locust experience was a foretaste, a sample of a great day that's going to come. And so as well as speaking to the people in their particular situation, he wanted them also to mend their ways in the light of the day of the Lord. So I'm going to read from Joel chapter 2 verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain, that all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it, to the years of many generations." A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. And nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble. Like a mighty people arranged for battle, before them the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line. They do not deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march, everyone in his path. When they burst through the defences, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city, they run on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. Before them the earth quakes and the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? 
even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among, their people, say among the peoples, where is their God? So here, we see this picture of the locusts again, like a mighty army. Those of you that were able to watch the video of last week or be with us last week will know that I began the uh, sermon with a short clip of locusts running uh, amok. And we saw them, they were like an army of soldiers just marching swiftly in columns, uh, devouring everything that they, they found. And then when they grew uh, mature enough, they sprouted wings. And not only were they a devastating army, but they'd become an air force of destruction. And we had a little bit of sample on that there. Well, here is a description of them here in Joel 2. He's going over it again. But maybe you notice, as I mentioned it beforehand, this picture of the day of the Lord coming. Joel is saying that what they're experiencing at the moment in this great disaster is a foretaste. A, 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 a prophetic sample of the day of the Lord that one day will come. Well, what do we mean by this phrase, the day of the Lord, that the prophet Joel is talking about and that the plague of locusts at that time was a foretaste and sample of? Well, in the Old Testament, when you're reading the prophets, often you'll come across this phrase, the day of the Lord. And the Old Testament prophets were looking, indeed the people of the Old Testament, were looking for a day when God would intervene in history and sort everything out once and for all. And this day, the day of the Lord, when God steps in in his fullness to sort everything out on earth, is going to have two aspects to it. On the one hand, the day of the Lord is going to be the fullness of God's salvation and God's delivering work. He's going to come and he's going to save and he's going to deliver his people on this day to the uttermost. So on the one, one side, the day of the Lord is a mighty delivering, saving culmination of God's work in history. That's the day of the Lord. But on the other hand, the day of the Lord, as well as being a great saving, delivering day, is also going to be a great day of justice, judgment, and dealing with unatoned sin. God, on the day, uh, on his day, on the day of the Lord, God is going to come to earth and he's going to clean house. And he's going to put right all the wrongs of history. And he's going to save his people, but he's also going to bring to account all those that need to be brought to account. 
important for us to remember these things because I think today not many Christians think about the day of the Lord. That's why it's good sometimes to go through books as God has given them as a theme to take the book of Job. I remember Colin taking the book of Habakkuk, I think it was last year or so. You, you, get, you get to deal with issues that you might not choose to do on a weekly basis. I don't know if I was left to myself whether I would choose the day of the Lord. Oh, what shall I preach on this week? The day of the Lord? Not sure that I would choose that. That's the beauty about sometimes spending time in a book like this, in a series. You, you don't choose the titles. You are to, as much as possible, bring forth the preaching of Joel. Now, this day of the Lord, the Old Testament prophets, they saw it like a panorama. It's like going high up. Anybody been high up on the shard? Anybody been high up on the Eiffel Tower? Anyone been high up anywhere? And yeah, we'll get uh, the New York Tower or whatever. And you look out and you can see a whole city or a whole plane. And you see this panoramic view, as we say. You see it in, in larger's life. So the Old Testament saw this day of the Lord, but they didn't quite understand exactly what it would be. But in the New Testament, we have more revelation. It's like God gives us binoculars or telescope. And we can see through the New Testament that the day of the Lord is also the second coming of Jesus. And the New Testament people lived in the light of the day of the Lord. It, 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 they, they made their decisions in the light that the day of the Lord was coming. Jesus was coming soon. In the last chapter of the Bible, in the book of Revelations, we hear three times Jesus leaving us with this message, Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. I could take a great selection of New Testament parables about the fact that the New Testament was preparing itself for the day of the Lord, but here in Romans 13, verse 11. Romans 13, verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armour of light. Now, in the first eight chapters of Romans, uh, Paul has already spoken to us about how to be saved. That if we put our trust in the fact that Jesus died for our sins on the cross and rose again and confessed with our mouth, we are saved. We put our trust in Jesus' sacrifice for our sins and we are saved. And here he's saying our salvation is nearer than we believed. The day is at hand. He's talking about the full day of salvation that's on our way. You can already know today if you believe in Jesus that your sins are forgiven forever and that should you die, you will go to heaven because Jesus has forgiven your sins and you have faith in his name. But that's not the fullness of salvation. The fullness of salvation that Paul is looking forward to is the day when Jesus returns. Do you know, if we are alive when Jesus returns and when he appears in the sky, if we were alive, then in a twinkling of an eye, 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us, our, our earthly weak bodies will be completely transformed in an instant to our glorified bodies that will never ever again taste sin, sickness or death. We'll be totally saved, body, soul and spirit. Not only that, 
when Jesus returns, those who are alive will be transformed to greet him in the air and accompany to him to earth, but also all the saints that believed in God from the Old Testament, New Testament, right up to that day. Those that are in heaven will be reunited with the seeds of their bodies wherever they lay or have been scattered, and they themselves will be joined and their bodies will be completely glorified. It's the difference between an acorn and a mighty oak tree. The acorn, the body that's sown in weakness and the mighty tree that will be raised when Jesus has returned. That's full salvation on that day. And so there's a picture of salvation and deliverance. 1 Peter 4 verse 7 says, the end of all things is near. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, I want to read that, because like Joel, this is talking about the day of the Lord. And remember, the day of the Lord has two major thrusts, great saving, powerful work, Jesus returns for his saints, the resurrection. But also there is a note of great judgment for unatoned sin and for the wrongs of history. God is coming to clean house. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 1. Now to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labour pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you're all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, drunk at night. But since we're of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here again, God has not destined us for wrath. When that day comes, if you're a believer in Jesus, then you will receive full salvation. But also there's a note of destruction for those that reject Jesus as their Messiah. What Joel is saying, I guess what the New Testament people are also saying is this, is that in great acts of destruction and tribulation in personal lives or in city lives or national lives but also in great acts of mercy and grace are samples of the day to come some people say oh the day of the Lord Jesus says behold I'm coming soon well he's taking his time about isn't he 2,000 years and counting maybe it'll be another 2,000 years and so often Christians today can dismiss the importance of the day of the Lord. Like, oh well, it's a long way away, don't need to think about it. And they go to sleep when it comes to the preaching of the doctrine of the day of the Lord. Or they busy themselves with living day by day and they become drunk on the things, inebriated on the things of life because this day of the Lord seems some sort of apocalyptic, it is indeed, mysterious event that really won't come in our times. It's especially a British plague, I've noticed, this plague of not believing in the day of the Lord. Um, it's not so in other countries. But the New Testament people, they have this alertness. 
Paul said, you know, let us cast off the works of darkness because this day is coming and, and God is going to hold us to account. What must it be like to live in the light of the day of the Lord? This is what Joel was asking his people to do. He said this plague of locusts is a sample of the day to come. Later on when we get into Joel, we're going to have the people turning their hearts to God and God pouring out a wonderful Pentecost of restoration to the land. Indeed, the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes and says, this is that, what the the prophet Joel prophesied, the day of Pentecost. uh, Peter was saying that that we are sampling this, this outpouring Now, you can think of the two days of Pentecost. The church Pentecost in the day of Acts was a day of great grace, incredible grace, and incredible salvation. 3,000 people in one day gave their lives to Jesus on the day of Pentecost. That was a sample, a picture of the great day of salvation to come. But does anybody remember what happened on the first Pentecost when the law was given to Moses? Well, the people were in rebellion at that time and 3,000 people got judged severely because of their sin. Both these Pentecosts put together is a picture and a sample of the day of the Lord to come. Pentecost of Peter was a great sampling of the salvation that comes on the day of the Lord and the Pentecost of Moses with its judgment was also a sampling of the day of the Lord. You say, well, what's a sampling? Well, I was in Tesco's yesterday and as I walked through my Tesco's, there was a table and it had olives on sticks and cheese on sticks. And so you go to the table and there's a nice person there smiling and you take one of the cheese and you take a taste one of the olives, and you go, hmm, that's, that's very nice. And so you take another piece of cheese, nice, another olive, and the smile starts to disappear a little bit. <laughs> and then you reach to get the third one, and uh, it's just a sample. It's just a sample, sir. If you want the full cheese, it's over there, and it costs five pounds. <laughs> it's a sample. Well, someone says, the day of the Lord, well, whenever, it's 2,000 years, you know, we don't have to worry about, oh, yeah, Well, you better be concerned about the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is expressing itself in foretastes and samples in our lives and also in history. The book of Acts was a great sample and foretaste of the saving power of the day of the Lord. The the, the Pentecost of Moses was a terrible example of the judgment aspect of the saving of, of, of the Lord. And so in the history of the world, you can look back to moments of great deliverance that comes into history by God is a picture of his saving power that will come in its fullness for those that believe on the day of the Lord. But also terrible events that have taken place in history. Shattering events. I was thinking of a few. Uh, First World War, Second World War. Nobody was ready for them, for either of them. They came in tremendous, horrific shaking of the world. God was speaking to people and nations to turn for him as the only prince of peace. But at the same time, 
It was an experience of the day of days that comes. As terrible as those world wars were, they are, were, they are nothing compared to the fullness of judgment that's coming. As marvelous as the great revivals that we see. I've written a book on revivals in Great Britain through the ages. The Welsh revivals and the Ulster revivals and the Wesleyan revivals and, and the Middle Ages revivals. All these wonderful revivals. What are they? As wonderful as they are, They they are samples, foretastes of the saving power when Jesus returns. I tell you what, if you're a believer here today, you you can't but wait for the day when Jesus returns and the fullness of any saving experience you've had. The day you gave your life to the Lord, how wonderful. It's just a sampling of the day when he returns and you get the fullness of your body and you're no more susceptible to sin. You know... On this earth, if you're a believer, the only hell that you will ever taste if you're a believer is on this earth, in this fallen earth where bad things happen to good people and bad people alike, where tragedy can hit a believer's life as well as an unbeliever's life. The only taste of that pain, that hell that, will, that, that, that is reserved for the devil and his angels and those that reject Christ You experience it on earth, but you'll never experience it when Jesus comes on that day. The pain will be over for you. But likewise, for those that reject Jesus as Messiah, the only heaven they will ever taste is their life on the earth. The blessings of God, common grace, rain on the the godly and the ungodly. It's shining in London, and when it rains, God doesn't stick umbrellas over the unrighteous. The taste of blessing, the goodness of God to all people on earth, or most people, many people on earth. There are people going through terrible, um, you know, starvation things. But generally speaking, it's generally true that people who enjoy the blessings of this earth, well, when that day comes, if you're not found in Christ, then you're going to have to pay for everything that you have done. Why pay for everything for what you have done when Jesus did it on your behalf? Luther, Martin Luther, in October, we're going to have a conference with some top guest speakers where we're going to celebrate 500 years of the Reformation and the powerful reforming truths that turned Europe on its head and of the benefits of which we probably don't even realise how much we're enjoying today. Well, Martin Luther said this, I live as though Christ died yesterday, rose again today, and we're coming again tomorrow. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Jesus died yesterday? Wow. You know, the blood is still there on the ground that was shed for the sight. Wow, that is fresh. I live in the light as if he died yesterday, Luther. Today, Jesus is alive. I mean, it's not just Easter Sunday. It's the day of resurrection. And Luther is saying, resurrection power is available for me, my life, for my ministry, Resurrection power as fresh as the day that Jesus rose. But also, his decisions on that day, his actions are going to be tempered and encouraged by the fact that he lives as if Jesus is coming tomorrow. Every time a great move of grace and mercy comes, and every time destruction or a shaking comes, God is saying, prepare yourself for my Day. That's the message of Joel. You see, in this terrible Grenville, Grenfell disaster, where many of us at KT have been on the forefront of ministering 
and helping those that are in need. You heard about our time in the park yesterday with others and, and all these things that, that, that we have been doing. And, and in the midst of this tragedy, it's strange because, you know, the tragedy of people losing their life. And then you, you hear about a miraculous escape of someone, of how they came out. And it's like, how do we deal with this? It's so horrific. It's so terrible. It's so tragic. Yet that person had a miraculous deliverance. We thank you, Lord, for that deliverance. But what about the others? And then you think of all the terrible things that have happened and, and how long it's going to take, if ever, for people to, to get their lives back to normal and have healing in their hearts and their experiences. And you think of the terrible things and, and what people are still going through. But at the same time, you think of a community that came together in a way it's never come together before. People from all walks of life and faiths and none outpouring their generosity. And if I can put it this way, the best of humanity also on show with such a terror. And so you have these terrible things, but also these amazing things, if I can say that, together and and how do we deal with these things? Well, it's all a picture of the day of the Lord. People came to Jesus in Luke chapter um, 13, and they said, Jesus, what about all these people that died in the destruction of that tower that fell down? What about those people? Jesus, what about the people that Herod slaughtered and, and wiped out? What about those people? Now, Jesus was the kindest man that ever lived on the earth. He was your perfect social worker. He was going and feeding the poor. He was healing the sick. He was bringing in the, the, the prostitutes and the tax gatherers who had been thrust out of society. He made room for them in the kingdom of God. He was forgiving people's sins. He was meeting need wherever he was. And, if he, and, and he has been meeting the need of, of, of just down the road through his people. In the coming weeks, Jesus meets need. But his response to these that were asking why them was this. He was saying, never mind why them, how about you? You likewise will perish unless you turn to the Lord. So what Jesus was doing was saying that in that disaster, it's not that this person sinned or that person sinned, but the lesson for the observer is this. Something greater is coming than that on the day of the Lord. And have you got your life right with God? This is Joel's message. He's saying, look, these locusts, it's terrible. But, but God, something greater than the locusts is coming on the day of the Lord. Turn to the Lord so that when that day comes, it will be a day for you of great salvation and deliverance. I remember when I was in my car going home from the church office one day, and I was thinking about this and thinking about that, thinking about what <clears throat> shall I get for dinner from Tesco's. Twice I've mentioned Tesco's. So, um, and I'm thinking, I'm driving. I'm just in my routine. And then almost out of nothing, these clouds sweep in. And then it begins to hail. I mean, it doesn't just hail a little bit, but it gets more and more intense until on the A40, everybody has stopped their car because the hailstorm is so intense. You, even the wipers going on manic mode can't deal with the time. I think the roof is going to... To, you know, break. It's that, it's that kind. Have anybody been in a storm like that? You know what I'm talking about. And so we're all stopped. From me just in my routine to all of a sudden, the whole environment has changed in an instant. And I heard these five words deep in my heart as I was just looking around at all this and hearing this tremendous noise and, and not being able to see because of the hailstorm. I heard these words in my heart. 
so shall my day be. And I thought, my goodness, it's going to be like a thief in the night. But Paul says, but we can prepare ourselves because these foretastes are coming. Foretastes of great moves of God. Foretastes of great blessing. Although God tends to whisper in those. But also calamities, difficulties, trials that hit your personal life, showing us a sickness hits you. And you think, do you know what? I didn't realise how much health meant to me. And you realise that, that life is, is, is just a mist that's going to be gone, that all flesh is as grass. Something happens to a friend of yours and it hits you. And all of a sudden you realise that, that so much is transitory in life and that actually all that matters is going to be where we are when that day comes. It shakes, it speaks, the pains that come into our lives. God is speaking And in terrible events, is it possible to believe that God can still put the seeds of redemption? Is it possible to believe that in shakings, in in, in difficult times, during the times we wonder where God is, but is it possible that God has something special in in store after that? Some of the greatest challenges in my past life as an individual, I'm sure it's for you, I'd never want to go through them again. But I'm glad I've been through them. Why? Because God turned something good out of that which at the time was very bad, at least in my eyes. Something bad was going on in the Joel generation. It was the locusts. It was terrible, terrifying, horrible. But God was speaking through it. They hadn't come to the latter part of Joel 3, but God's intention was that through this shaking and this shouting and this experience, that people would turn to him that their routine would be changed and they wouldn't be able to live day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, in a routine where God sits at the edges because he's not needed at the centre. But somehow God wanted to come back into the centre of his people's lives. And and God is a very jealous God. Why? Because he's a very loving God. If you love someone, there will be a corresponding level of holy jealousy. Can you imagine having, having a husband or a wife and you didn't care who they went out with at any time? You'd say, you don't love, but that jealousy. And sometimes God loves us so deeply, he's prepared to allow severe things to come into our lives in order to shout to us so that he can bring us back to the place of great peace, relationship, And the blessing. We're going to come uh, next time when we we come to this, not next week, but the week after with our special guests next week. We're going to come into the time of great blessing. People turn their hearts to the Lord and then God blesses them in such an amazing way. Although we're going to have to uh, be careful with the blessing as well. We're going to have to be careful with the blessing. I remember, this is true, one, one day I'd gone through what I considered to be a trial in my life. It was a difficulty. And I trusted the Lord on this occasion and at the end of it when I came through I thanked the Lord and I thought to myself well I'll give myself 7 out of 10 for that going through that trial trusting God. And then I felt I believe it was the Holy Spirit just giving that sort of confirmation of well done you did alright. And then I believe I heard these words and it was like and it was this it was well done but you're not ready for the test for, the, for my greatest test yet. I thought, oh no. 
I thought, who's going to die? What's it, you know? Oh, no. Well done, but you're not ready for my greatest test yet. Oh, no. But then I felt I heard this other voice saying, the test of my blessing. You're not ready for my greatest test. What's that? The test of my blessing. We're going to look at the test of my blessing in a couple of weeks. But as I close here, just as we go back to see the response here in Joel, it's wonderful because we see this terrible event. But then in verse 12, just after it says, who can endure it? God says, yet even now, return to me with all your heart, rend your heart and not your garments, return to the Lord your God for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in goodness and relenting in evil. Who knows whether he'll not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind. You see, even in this difficult times, there was this, if I can put it, tease of God to come. To come, to come in your difficulty, to come in times of trial, because the answer is right before you. It's the Lord himself. And to remember in times of difficulty that God is shining brightly all the time. He's like the sun at noon, shining brightly, and he never changes, he never dips. He is shining brightly. Sometimes the clouds of life come and obscure the shining of God, but God is still shining like the sun is still shining behind the clouds. And guess what? The clouds are temporary, but the shining of God's love is eternal. He's calling them back to him, and he's saying, come to me. Come to me and see if I will not release blessing in this difficult situation. And then lastly, the last, he says in verse 17, let the priests of the Lord's ministers, the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep before the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O God. Do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. In other words, because when we get to verse 18 in two weeks' time, we're talking deliverance, outpouring, restoration, glory, mercy. But look, these last verses before that, it's the priests, and what are they doing? Weeping between the porch and the altar is a picture of us, believers, all of us are priests. You know that. If you're a believer, you're a priest of God. Hey, we're the only priests London have got, you and me. And we're to go to the porch, if it were, to look out the world and see what's happening and hear God's heart for the brokenness and the fear and the hopelessness of a world without Christ and the situations that we come across. And then we're to see and then we're to go to the altar. The altar is the picture of sacrifice where blood is shed so that God can deal with humankind according to mercy rather than judgment. It's the blood that stands in the gap. It's the blood that God answers to. Someone's got to pay the price for God's mercy. Jesus has paid the price on the cross. We go to the altar and we say, Father, please do not deal with London according to its sins or Britain according to its sins, but deal with London according to the blood of Jesus that was shed 2,000 years. Look at our situations through the lenses that are tinted with the blood of Jesus and we plead the blood over this nation that you would deal with us according to Christ's death and not according to our sins. And we plead and we go back again and we see
and we go back and we are priests standing on behalf of the nation or the city before God pleading for grace by the blood of Jesus and then going back with the good news of Jesus standing before humans with the gospel. This is what will bring a turning and an outpouring that God desperately wants to bring to us. But imagine if he had poured out the blessings with no call to repentance. The people were still living in their daily routines without God. And things got better. Do you think they would turn to, the, to God? Do you think they would glorify God? These things are necessary in the plan of God.